Whom should you ask for a letter of recommendation? Someone who is well-known, like a professor, or somebody who knows you well? So, the letter of recommendation is kind of like, it exists on like two axes, and you want to maximize both. <laughs> so there's like the fame of the person writing the letter, like the, you know, how well-known is that person, especially to the place that you're applying. Um, and then there is like, let's say fame and reputation, even if the person isn't known, you're like, okay, well, they're a professor, they're a tenured professor or whatever at UCSD, they must have done pretty well or something in research. The other axis is how well they know you. <laughs> and, a, and, a, and maybe a third axis is how long do you think their letter can be? <laughs> because um, the, the how well, there's no rule that says a postdoc or a grad student can't write you a letter of recommendation, um, but they're not going to be scoring very high on the uh, on the the reputation axis because people don't really know them that that well. Um, but they could make up for it in the fact that they you know they they know you really well. They worked with you every day for you know one or two years or four years, um, and that can make for a really good. Uh, for a really good letter. Um, in that case, it might actually be useful to get the letter from the postdoc and a letter from the PI. And the letter from the PI might be shorter, but at least it's like the, the stamp of approval kind of thing. You want to go to places where people are healthy, where they appear to have good social interactions with each other. Um, the, you know, the, the surest way out of, uh, out of, um, out of frustration and even depression is to be working toward a common goal with people that you enjoy working with. And another uh, way to negotiate the rough patches, to deal with the rough patches, is to recognize that there are an infinite number of topics that a scientist or engineer could be working on. And Often we don't realize that we have the power to change our situation where if this particular approach isn't working, we think that if we give up after working on it for a month that we are flushing all of that work, you know, we're throwing it all away. And that's, uh, some of you may, might have heard of the, the sunk cost fallacy, that if you throw good time after bad time, <laughs> that, uh, that you can recoup some of those losses. But usually it's best just to move on and to talk to your mentor or your supervisor, um, or even, even what it, maybe you came up with the idea and you're like, nope, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trash this, this, this approach. I'm gonna find another approach to do. Um, and, and sometimes, like I realize that's like a form of contingent happiness, like we need to change our external circumstances to make us feel better about what we're doing. But honestly, like, you know, I've, I've had like kind of a meditation practice off and on for six years and to try to get like an interior form of like, of like equanimity. But, you know, 50% of happiness is contingent, so you might as well embrace the contingency and use it to your advantage and just try to change your situation, if at all possible. How can you spot bad work environments? What are the red flags? I would ask people who have been in the group 
If there are people who left the group or left the company, I would ask them like what their uh, what their experiences were like. Um, if it's if there are people in the group who complain about it, that is a huge red flag because people who are in an organization have every reason in the world to view it through rose-colored glasses. One, because they want to justify their own life choices and, uh, and, and maybe convince you that, that what, they, what they did is the right thing and that you should go along with, you know, with what they say. So if, if, you're, if you're interviewing for a position and there are people who are really negative about the, uh, about the, uh, about the organization, I would stay away from it. How do you identify a positive fit? Determining a positive fit, like, you know, you have a bunch of options and they all look good. It looks like the students or the researchers or the workers there are flourishing uh, personally and professionally. Then differentiating one from another is uh, is a lot more difficult. It's, it's easy to, to just like... Um, to, to dismiss the one with the red flags. It, to some extent, you have to go with, uh, with a combination of like your, your gut and also looking at where the people have ended up that are doing work in those places. Um, also, I would go to a place where the PI especially seems to actually want you to be there, like the ones where they're really enthusiastic about about recruiting you. Because if they, you know, if they don't respond to your email, or maybe it's just the grad student who kind of brought you on board, but the PI doesn't ever really want to meet with you, then if it's if it's like, you know, if they're going to put that level of effort into recruiting your your efforts and your time, like, then how much do you think they're going to help you after you're after you're gone, because I still need my um, PhD mentor and postdoc mentor, even though it's been nine years since I was a postdoc and 11 years since I was a grad student and uh, 16 years since I was an undergraduate. And I still need those people to like support me in my uh, in my career like I need letters sometimes, um, you know, less so for my undergrad advisor, but I actually reach out to my postdoc mentor a few times a year to ask her for, uh, for advice or for a letter of recommendation or something. Um, and, you know, she was always somebody that was super supportive while I was in her group and has continued to remain so afterwards. So those are the, the types of characteristics of a, of a lab that can really like accelerate your, um, your, uh, your scholarship or career. When and how do you know if you should drop a bad project? <laughs> when do you know when to cut your losses? <laughs> that is the absolute hardest thing uh, to, to know. There are grad students that are in uh, that are in the lab now who have been in the lab in the past, um, who have been and undergrads and postdocs who've been in in my lab. And oftentimes there is a project that um, that is just like it's like cursed, <laughs> and uh, and you you don't know how long you should you should bark up that tree, and. 
there's no there's no easy answer um this is something that comes with experience and uh and what i can say is that the earlier that you can jettison a a a poorly performing project uh the better um sometimes it's useful to set a a time limit so for example we we i had a discussion with one of my grad students and we were um they'd been working on this project for uh you know for a year and a half or something and we were getting very close to publication and there's an, an adage in scientific research that well you can always do one more experiment like when, even when a paper is published you can always do one more experiment you could always do 10 more experiments uh and when when do you know when to stop and so i i told him and i and i said it in like a uh you know 1960s um sci-fi way i said I'll give you four of your Earth days, and uh, and then at the end of of the four days, we're going to publish whatever we have. Um, and sometimes it just comes down to setting a time limit. Um, say I'm gonna I'm gonna, but somebody has to hold you to it. So you have to tell somebody, right? Because social pressure is really useful. It's really like bad. It's what makes us stressed out, but it's also really useful if you can leverage it. Um, so it's like. It's like if I'm if I'm not done with this in if this doesn't this project doesn't move in a month um, and this is the date and put it on a calendar and put it on a friend's calendar, um, then then that's it. And we're moving on. So sometimes you just have to be kind of draconian with your own uh, with your own your own schedule. Uh, Sometimes these. It's, it, I don't know, I imagine it's a little bit like holding on to a bad stock in the stock market. Like, you know, you could hold it forever and it might consume all of the money that you invested in it. Uh, and the question is, you know, how long do you continue to hold on to the stock or how long do you continue to, to stay at the uh, the roulette wheel or something? Not that I've ever played roulette at a casino but it's sort of it's sort of like that so rambling answer i wish there was a better one set time limits use social pressure to your advantage and uh, and jettison these projects early rather than later when applying to grad school should i stay in the same field or try something different so okay i've been playing the piano since i was six years old and i'm not very good for somebody who's been playing for 32 years so um the reason I'm not very good is because I only play what I sound good playing. And if I had tried to learn something new, I'd probably have five times the uh, the repertoire than I do, and I would be able and I would, you know, have a lot more uh, musical experience. Same thing in research, where people um, do one thing in high school or undergrad research and then they are convinced that they that that's what they want to do their next uh do for their next the next step in their education so for me that was um that was organic synthesis of these bioactive natural product molecules and when i went to grad school i was like <laughs> i knew i knew i could do it 
So it was like seemed low risk to me, but it also seemed a little bit boring to continue doing the same thing. So I totally switched to a completely different, uh, different, different topic. Um, I would encourage, uh, so especially because that first topic that you have, it, you came to it often because of luck. Like that was the, the person who responded to the email. So like you send 10 emails out and you get one response and you end up doing that. So you do like, I don't know, soft robotics or, um, or history of the enlightenment or something. And then when you're in a position to decide what to do next, you choose the exact same thing because you're good at it. Uh, whereas if you chose something different, you could learn some totally new thing and that might be, you know, that might become your new, like uh, most fluent um, language. So I would encourage people to switch topics more often than they are usually inclined to do because of, you know, human inertia. Um, and oftentimes when I see candidates who apply for grad school and they're like, no, I can only do this one thing, or this is, you know, and why is it just that one thing? It's because that's the professor who responded to their email when they were a sophomore. <laughs> How can you figure out what a lab is working on when you don't yet speak the language? Yeah, it's really hard at the beginning to have a good uh, to have a good idea of one what your own interests are and two whose interests among the faculty actually align with those and actually what they're what they're doing like learning what they're actually doing can be quite difficult. Sometimes their lab websites look like they're from 1995. And uh, that's quite typical in, in academia is to not update your website. So what's on there, um, that's actually a red flag if that's the case. <laughs> um, but sometimes what's on those websites could be so out of date that it's not even what they're doing. Also, the, the big picture of what a lab is working on, whether it's like um, you know, cancer biology or um, uh, or mechanics of biomaterials or organic synthetic chemistry. Sometimes it's not even that clear from the website. So I think this is where it's important to try to match your interests with popular versions of how that lab communicates with the outside world. And that could be YouTube, it could be podcasts, a lot of my colleagues have been guests on podcasts, and actually I find out what some of my colleagues are doing by listening to, to like what they say, and because they're saying it to like a, they're describing it to a, um, a non-specialist audience, it's like easy for me to understand what they're doing. So like I developed a collaboration, I now have a grant with a member of the Department of Anesthesiology based on, um, uh, based on, um, using a, a wearable haptic device to assist meditation to help chronic pain patients. Um, and that came like directly from my listening to their appearance on a science podcast. So if you can find like the most high level and by high level, I mean like 30,000 foot view level um, description 
of what those labs are doing and say, that's what I'm interested in. I really like what they said. I'm going to apply to that lab. How much agency do undergrads typically have in choosing a project within a research group? On one side, you have glassware washing where nobody wants to do, if you're in a lab where they're just having you wash glassware, quit immediately. Um, then the other extreme is like, maybe after some experience, um, you have your own project and that could lead to like a first author paper. So a first author paper as an undergrad is like the, uh, is like the unicorn thing. It's like a very rare thing, but when you see it, it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. Um, because it takes a lot of like luck <laughs> to be in a position where you can like lead your own project. And usually that doesn't happen until the, uh, you know, you've been in the lab for a couple of, of years. Sometimes, um, so the, the projects available depend on the, the projects available depend on the sort of underlying scientific expertise of the lab. It depends on the specific projects that the grad students are doing at the time that you join the lab and some and projects also depend on like a good project also fits into the strategy of the group so ideally when a professor gets good at their job they can match projects with funding opportunities publication opportunities and funding opportunities that will perpetuate that research in the future. There are a lot of things that could be done in the lab. Um, there are a lot of things that would lead to a paper, but they are not things that could get, uh, that could lead to sustainable funding. So I would say that the type of that when an undergrad comes into a lab and they have their own ideas, if the idea is not a good idea, it is usually for one of two reasons. One is that it doesn't fit in with the long-term funding strategy of the group, um, which is difficult to know without experience. The second is that the idea has already been done and because the undergrad doesn't have the experience to like know what has or has, hasn't been done. But that's just if they come in with their own idea. If the, if the undergrad works with a grad student or a postdoc or even with the PI, depending on the, you know, the level of involvement of the PI in the actual research, eventually there may be an idea that comes out of that work that can be spun off into an undergraduate's primary project. And that's happened multiple times in my group. So I have, I think there are four papers that have undergrad first authors, um, uh, where undergrads were the first author. It might be five now, where one, one time it was actually two, two papers written by the same student. Um, so it definitely does happen. It wasn't necessarily an idea they came up with before joining the group or even within the first like two quarters of being in the group, but it was something that are, that arose from their experience and the results of doing that project. Suppose you have a good idea of what you want to work on as an undergraduate or graduate student. 
How do you find the labs doing the work you want to yeah, do? Yeah, so I would start a uh, like a I would treat that like a research project. Um, I would start a uh, a document. I'd start like a word processor document and write down the uh, the like categorize like um, cancer biology. I don't know why I'm using that example, but let's go with it. Cancer biology. Um, uh, virology and immunology, um, mechano neuroscience, and just take each lab that you like first just put in the Google terms and, and use like neuroscience, UCSD, neuroscience, the Scripps Research Institute, neuroscience, Salk, uh, Salk neuroscience, Sanford Burnham. Um, and, uh, and then comb through and find the, the lab names and cut and paste those into the document. Um, and that's sort of like level one, scratching the surface. Level two might be, uh, might be searching for, um, popular things that they've done. And I really think that this is where youtube and podcasts like are helpful because if you search and even twitter actually a lot of labs have a have a twitter page a lot of pis have a twitter page um, some of you may not realize this but if you want to get in the heads of the inner lives of your faculty members of the people teaching your classes then look up their twitter feed and you can see all of their inner thoughts that they have broadcast to the entire world um, and that can be fairly entertaining. Um, but they also post their research news on Twitter. So you can follow them there. Uh, and then that's, um, that's sort of level two. Level three is the peer-reviewed literature. And, uh, and the peer-reviewed literature has lots of different kinds of paper. Uh, we talked about this in the video. Um, but if you can find the levels like... Um, review accounts, mini review, papers that they've written for publications like uh, Scientific um, American or something like that, and you can read those papers, um, then that's, then you can get a closer sense of like what, uh, what they're actually doing <laughs> in the lab, like what, what are they like mixing together? Because that's what scientists do is they mix uh, graduated cylinders <laughs> together like this. Um, and and I think the final step is to compose an email and reach out and say, you know, this is why I'm applying to your group. Um, and it's not because, you know, I want to line on my resume. It's because I'm really interested. You don't say that, of course, but uh, this is, you know, why I'm interested in your, uh, your research and what I think I could, uh, I could offer and just show enthusiasm and see what they, uh, see what they say. Um, you know, the, if the goal is to like get a zoom conversation with them, um, or with their grad students, or maybe to get, uh, invited to a group meeting, that's something that you can put in the email, like um, maybe not the first email, maybe after they respond once, you could ask that. Uh, and the surest way to get somebody to do something is to make them want to do it. 
actually the only way. <laughs> the, the only way to get somebody to do something is to make them want to do it. And uh, if that's to be invited to a group meeting, you, you know, they have to know why you're interested and what, um, uh, what, what you might be able to, uh, to offer, but much less the second thing. Offering enthusiasm is more than enough at this point, especially if it's your first research experience. <laughs> it could be fun too. Like, you know, I think you'll learn a lot in the process of discovery. Um, it's actually a lot like the process of, um, like when I was applying for grad schools uh, and uh, faculty positions, I think I met with, you know, 10 people at each place that I applied to uh, when I did my visits or interviews. And you just learn so much. And then at the end, you think that your your goals are going to be way different than, or your goals are often way different than they were when you first set out upon the, uh, upon the task. 